0: Hi and welcome to this episode of the Room & Room Podcasts. This episode is just one of a series of podcasts brought to you by the Facebook group The Room & Room, proudly supported by PGG Rights and Seeds. My name's Charlotte Westwood and this episode is the second in a two-part mini-series all about interpreting feed test results as relating to a sample of pasture silage. Hopefully you've tuned into the first episode in which we ran through quite a bit of information about how we should be collecting samples for feed testing from either your stack or pit silage or pasture baleage if you're more of a bale type person. And in that episode we then moved on to discussing the various mineral results reported as part of a full feed test analysis, typically reported by many feed testing labs here in New Zealand, uh, with this one specifically a report from Hill Laboratories in Hamilton. The discussion around minerals included an overview, firstly, of how to interpret those mineral results uh, for both macro minerals and trace minerals, and then a little bit of discussion about what's good and not so good for minerals. So with a Hills Laboratory feed test result, which many of you New Zealand listers will be familiar with, we see the macro and trace mineral results typically at the top half of uh, the first page of a Hills Laboratory report, and then we move down into other parts that are more commonly reported in f- results for a full feed test, uh, specifically as it relates to silage. Um, Any of you that are interested in not just listening along, perhaps if you're uh, sitting down with your feet up and you do want to have a look at the actual feed test that we're talking about today, you can go into the Rumen Room on Facebook. If you're not already a member, you can join up and within there, we'll certainly post the actual feed test results. So if you're not uh, in the tractor or on the road driving along your ute, And you do want to have a look as you listen, that will be uh, posted and available on the Room and Room, the Facebook. So the second part of our two-part series with regard to feed analysis discussions is going to focus on the bottom half of the page of a Hill Laboratory report. In the case of if you have ordered a full, uh, complete feed analysis on your silage sample, There are a lot of ranges of different uh, requests that you can make, anything from just simply dry matter and megajoules of metabolizable energy through to the extended feed profile silage test that we're discussing today. And that includes, as we said before, the minerals. all of the different parts of the feed analysis uh, from a physical point of view of the feed like protein and fibre and then finishing up with a fermentation acid profile which is really useful for defining the value of your silages. Now there's a lot of value in taking samples of silage to test for the feed analyses but just a quick disclaimer here about looking at silage feed tests. In the ideal world, which of course we don't always work within, we're usually looking at the silage either fed out in the paddock or perhaps at the stack face or even a couple of um, unwrapped and fed out bales of baleage and that to me is the best way to assess silage. We can actually uh, handle it, give it a squeeze, see if we get moisture out of it, see what the is like, whether you've got grass and clover or all clover or no clover, um, and how heavy the stems are on the grass part of a pasture silage. So it's a little bit tricky just looking at feed tests in isolation. So it's a wee bit of a disclaimer there first. So yeah, word of caution that lab tests assessed in isolation can sometimes be a little bit misleading. So in this case, with this feed test, we're working through results based just on the results alone. Not ideal, but hey, uh, the results will give you a general idea of just how good or not that feed test is going to be for your silage. And better than not looking at, either looking at it or testing it at all. You'll recall in the first episode that with the minerals, we didn't find anything in particular that stood out as being a problem on this feed test. Now again, if you had listened to episode one, the backstory to this silage sample was that uh, the uh, people who submitted the sample were concerned because their cattle were very unhappy to be eating this silage. And as well as that, the observation was made, it was a bit stinky. So nothing turned up on the mineral side of it, of why the cattle would be refusing to eat it. So now we're going to move into the second half of the report and look at other things. Uh, Dry matter percent crude protein, the fibres NDF and ADF, lignin, ash, organic matter. We are going to step through through these things um, one by one and just see whether there's anything that's red flagging that may be an indication that the silage isn't so flash for whatever reasons. And when we've talked about the fibre and protein and dry matter percent, then to finish up we're going to move on to the silage-specific numbers – so that is stuff that is only reported for silages um, by the feed testing laboratory, not other feeds. Obviously some of these things as we get to you'll realise that things like pH or the acidity um, and the fermentation acids obviously have no relevance to fresh forage um, or you know dry feeds like cereal grains. So it is a silage specific set of results we'll be discussing as we get further down the report. Right, let's get this show on the road. Figuring out what all of those numbers mean on your feed tests, part two. Let's kick off first with the dry matter percent of your silage. So that's going to be about halfway down the page on your feed test result from, in this case, Hills Laboratory. Simply put, dry matter percent is describing to us the amount of useful stuff, so that's dry matter, in your silage, and that dry matter percent is expressed as a percent of the wet weight of silage. So let's pretend, say, you have in your hands one kilo wet weight of your silage. So for sure it weighs one kilo, and you can check that point on the scales if you want. But from the all ruminant animal's point of view, around, uh, let's say, two-thirds of that wet weight of silage is just water, so let's say a typical dry matter percent of pasture silage might be 35%. So your one kilo wet weight of silage in your hands in front of you only contains 350 grams or 0.35 of a kilogram of dry matter. All the rest is water. And that's not doing your animals any favours. It's not doing them any harm. But obviously every mouthful, they're only getting 35% goodies like energy and protein and minerals. And the rest is just water. What's the relevance of the dry matter percent of our silage sample on our feed test. Our stack silage, pasture silage, contains 26% dry matter. So what do you think about that? Is that any good? How would you feel if you found a dry matter percent on your silage at 26%? Well, some of you may be throwing your hands up, going, whoa, way too wet. But hey, if you're new to the silage testing interpretation, what you do is you look at the range of values that are suggested on the Hill Laboratories report. And they say that in that sort of um, medium range, you know, of what they'd expect to see with a pasture silage, typically we'd be looking for somewhere between 35 and 45% as a, not necessarily a specific target, but as an expected result. So that means there's not as much dry matter per kilogram wet weight in this silage sample at 26% than what we really should have. What do you reckon? Does that sound about right? Yeah, I think it does. Look, this silage sample on feed test looks suspiciously too wet to me. Now, we're looking at the feed test and we're not in the paddock with the silage, which is a shame because that is, as I say, the best place to assess it. But, If I got a result of 26%, I'd be wanting to look at that stack um, or pit of silage. Once we get below 30% dry matter, that means there's a real risk that there's likely to be already happening or is going, going to be happening an effluent ooze out of the bottom of that stack. Now, when we talk about effluent, it's not just water, hey, okay, it's come from all the excess water in the silage, but what effluent is, is an oozy, stinky, really quite unpleasant uh, fluid runoff that occurs when silage goes into the stack too wet, or perhaps if rainwater's gone in it later, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Now, effluent's a real problem to us for a number of reasons. Let's Let's kick this discussion off first. Number one, silage effluent is obviously stinky and unpleasant, and none of us want that on farm, and certainly not near houses, etc. So aside from that unpleasantness, we've got some specific issues that if that effluent gets into waterways, you're going to end up with a whole heap of trouble from your local regional council, um, if that's picked up, because the effluent contains a lot of soluble nutrients and uh, including nitrogen and a whole raft of nitrogen, phosphorus, sugars, soluble proteins, and it'll really contribute to degraded, um, you know, if it gets into creeks and then into rivers. um, And let's face it, none of us want this because we're all in this um, farming sustainably, um, aside from getting in trouble with your local council. I guess the, th- the third point of, of why we don't like effluent coming from a, a very wet silage is that it's literally costing you a heap of dollars, a heap of money literally down the drain. So as we said, silage effluent is not just stinky water. It's actually oozing away a lot of the dry matter from your stack. Now, wet stacks tend to to settle and shrink in size after they've been stacked more than dry silage does. Um, all stacks will do some degree of settling, some respiratory losses even on well-made silage. But when we have a really wet stack, you could lose 20% or more, even higher, of your dry matter in your stack as effluent. So if you put 100 tonnes dry matter into the stack, got it all covered nicely and through the last tyre, over the coming weeks, you might end up with only 75 or 80 tonnes of dry matter from that original Hundred tons, so it gets a very expensive um, episode, not really good. So, the dry matter that's being lost from your stack and effluent isn't just a generic dry matter, it's actually the best parts of the dry matter, typically sugars and soluble proteins, for example, all the good stuff that really should be staying in that stack to fuel the animal performance, um, whether you've got cattle, sheep, deer. And if that good soluble nutrients is oozing away, we're going to end up left with a high fibre, low digestibility, low um, energy stack that's really not so good uh, for feed for particularly uh, animals with a high requirement for nutrients, let's say lactating dairy cows, young growing stock and everything. So yeah, long story short, your animals won't be very impressed with that. So we we really um, lose a lot of value, a lot of money if we lose um, these soluble nutrients running out of the bottom of a stack as effluent. So the take home here about the dry matter result from your feed test um, report is that When we're looking at pasture silage in a stack we really want your silage to be at least 30% dry matter if not 35% to allow for a little bit more of a margin of error because once our silage is over 30% and certainly 35% we're very unlikely uh, to end up with effluent coming out of the bottom of it. We're talking pasture silage here but let's talk about for some of the harder to ensile types of forages such as uh, lucerne and red clover. Typically our dry matter percent is perhaps another 5% higher for stack and pit, lucerne and clover silage. So that might be targeting between 35 and 40%. And for pasture baleage, on average, we always target about 5% drier again for bales. And I know anyone listening in from other countries around the world, uh, Australia specifically, uh, we're a little bit quaint here in New Zealand. We do like our pasture silage um, uh, to be a little little bit wetter than what you guys have and certainly for our baleage to repeat the target dry matter percent for pasture baleage we like 35 to 40 percent. We acknowledge that we end up trucking a bit more water when we move bales around but we just find that those bales do in soil um, rather well. None of us set out to intentionally make wet silage or baleage more often than not, we end up inheriting wet silage despite our best intents. You know, it might be that silage contractors are, um, you know, short of time and, and short of um, workers at the moment, particularly uh, coming out of COVID and perhaps uh, picking up your silage sooner than what they'd like or what you'd like just because that's the only time slot they've got. Or the other way around, they're a little bit late getting there and maybe you get, uh, you know, 20, 30 mil of rain on top of your mowing silage. So not really ideal. If you do have to cut silage or um, know that you're going to be um, chopping mowing pasture that's too wet, you can do a few things uh, that you can discuss with the contractors or do yourself. If you get the chop length longer for very wet pasture, that can help reduce the risk of effluent ooze just because you've got longer pieces of pasture and bits of pasture. And this decreases the risk of ooze from the chopped grass simply because you haven't got as much of the as we do with short chop where the exposure of the chopped grass ends or oozing the innards out of um, that grass. So a longer chop length can slightly reduce the risk of effluent if the sil- grass silage, pasture silage is too wet. Obviously if it's like 20% uh, a longer chop simply not going to save you, it's still going to be too wet. As far as um, on this particular lab result, the order in which the results are reported, the next one on the list is crude protein. Now, if you'd listened into the first of this two-part series about interpreting feed tests for pasture silage, you'll recall that the lab calculates the crude protein content by multiplying the total nitrogen content of the feed on a dry matter basis by the factor of 6.25 to give us the crude protein result. And as we discussed in the last episode, that means that the result on this silage test is 10% crude protein. Now, that crude protein level uh, is on the low side of normal and most likely reflects the fact that uh, this is a very grass-dominant pasture uh, sample, for example. So not a lot of legume in there because more protein comes in with legume. Uh, And or the grass component of this mixed pasture silage contains very heavy stemmed, more mature uh, silage rather than a lighter cut of perhaps leafier grass. So that's where it's ideally good to look, not only at the feed test in isolation, but also at the silage uh, when we're on farm together, because then we can pick through some handfuls of that silage and try to speculate why the protein content is rather low. As an example, um, some of the ranges of uh, what you'd be more typically expecting with a silage, as reported by Hill Laboratories, is somewhere between fourteen to twenty percent. And yeah, that, that'd be ambitious to be up at twenty percent, but not unheard of if there was a lot of legume in there. So this sample, ten percent, is dropping on the low side of normal. It's not a deal breaker, uh, but if you wanted to feed higher amounts of the silage to a uh, young growing stock class as a high proportion of the diet, or for a lactating dairy cow with expectations of a lot of milk from that cow, we'd be looking for a better quality than than what we've got based on the crude protein. Next down the list after crude protein on this particular lab uh, report is two measures of fibre. Now the two that we've got here are ADF or acid detergent fibre or NDF, neutral detergent fibre. And as the name suggests, these are both measures, slightly different measures of the fibre component of your silage. Now typically if you want an absolutely awesome, good quality pasture silage, the lower the levels of NDF and ADF, the better. That said, if you wanted quite a rough uh, rough old baleage to feed alongside perhaps a high quality winter forage crop such as fodder beetle brassica, then hey, you might specifically want a higher NDF and ADF silage um, to balance the diet out and to provide some what we call physically effective NDF or physically effective fibre to main, help the animal maintain a stable room and function when you've got those very high quality feeds in the diet. So either way, coming back to this specific silage sample on the pasture, silage contains an NDF of 62% of dry matter and an ADF at 40% percent of dry matter. Now with regard to expectations, particularly if you want this baleage or silage to be really good quality, we'd like those values to be quite a bit lower Um, and this is starting to continue to flag up that the quality of the silage is rather poor, um, not really ideal. So again with all that NDF and ADF, perhaps the pasture that went into the stack was very mature, as we've already discussed, and as well as that, the other thing when we start to collect together these different results on silage, is that perhaps if we lost effluent from the stack, because remember it was only 26% dry matter, it could be that some of the soluble nutrients, let's say water-soluble carbohydrates or sugars and proteins, have actually leached out as effluent relatively more fiber gets left behind because obviously that doesn't ooze out in the black stink on the bottom of a running stack, uh, and because of that, you can end up with uh, high NDF and ADF, even if the grass that initially went in wasn't too bad. So, the other two reasons you can end up with high levels of fiber. Now, just on the topic of fiber, particularly any of you that perhaps are, are listening in from outside of New Zealand, you'll be asking, uh, Hey, Charlotte, hey, the room and room why don't we have on this particular feed test in front of us another extremely useful analysis called NDFD or the digestibility of NDF? Hey, well, well, simply outside of the research environment, just for now uh, and to my current understanding is we still do not have a commercial lab routinely offering NDFD, which is a bit of a shame, but perhaps in the future they'll become available to us. Now, those of you that haven't heard of NDF-D, digestibility, this test differentiates uh, between different types of NDF because not all NDF or neutral detergent fibre is created equal. We might, for example, have a grass silage sitting next to, so one sitting next to the other, and both of them might have tested out with an NDF of, say, 60%, and yet the NDFD might be 60% digestible, for one of those silages and only 40% for the other. So the NDFD is is a much better indication of what happens to the NDF when it goes into the rumen and how quickly and extensively degraded it would be. So, yeah, we might have that at some stage in the future, NDFD, and I'm certainly looking forward to it, uh, and we'll just have to watch this space. Enough about fibre. In this particular lab test, the next value that we're looking for here is lignin. So you're probably familiar with the term lignin, in that, particularly as it relates to tree trunks, lignin is obviously um, the very poorly digestible, tough stuff that allows things like trees to stand upright. Or perhaps if you grow kale as a a forage brassica through the winter, we often talk about how as winter progresses and the plants are getting very mature in late winter, how the bottom of the stem becomes very lignified or woody, just like a tree trunk. So lignin is associated with the cell wall as part of the nutrient profile of all feeds, including silages. And in this particular silage sample in front of us, this pasture silage sample, it's come back at 8% lignin as a percentage of dry matter. That probably implies there's quite a bit of mature stalky stuff present, Um, maybe some very mature grass in the silage sample. Pain, because we can't see that silage sample, we've just got the paper results. And maybe it's too mature, or as we said before, it might just be that all the soluble goodies have leached out if we've had effluent loss from this particular stack of pasture silage that's leaving non-leaching stuff behind, including the fibre and also the lignin that's associated with the fibre. At this point in time, hill um, laboratories don't give us an expected range of values for lignin, but typically for pasture silage, I'd be thinking I'd rather have it under, like lower than 8%, to be suggestive of of better quality pasture. So just a bit on the high side here, so it's contributing to telling us a bit of a story that perhaps this is a little bit too mature. So the next one down on this list of this particular feed test uh, report is... Well, it's not really a nutrient but it's a value that's called ash. Now ash is simply a measure of the amount of non-organic matter in the silage sample and an expected normal range needs to change for each of the type of silages that we test and report on. For example, for maize silage, we expect usually ash values to be down around that maybe five percent of dry matter and The reason that the ash levels in maize is quite low, in normal maize, is that maize contains rather low levels of minerals, such as sodium, uh, magnesium, a little bit lower on phosphorus. And because ash is essentially representative of the minerals in a feed sample, accordingly we don't expect to see high levels of ash in maize silage. At the other extreme where we're more likely to normally see higher levels of ash The legumes such as lucerne or red clover ending up in silage normally have a rather high amount of ash in the sample simply because these legume silages contain a lot of actually really helpful minerals. So it's not all bad. Um, They'll be high in all sorts of things, uh, you know, including calcium. So coming back to our pasture silage in question here we're working through today is that this sample contains around about 10% ash which is around about mid-range for a pasture silage of this type. Um, With pasture silage, we tend to be quite a wide range of what we'd normally expect to see, driven especially by the the proportions of grass that have a relatively low ash content and legumes that have a relatively high ash content. So yeah, your variation will be explained sometimes uh, by that ratio of grass to legume, including clovers. So in terms of uh, tripping points, I suppose, when do we start to worry about ash? Well, I don't worry about a low ash at all. The main concern if we get an unexpectedly high ash level, so this might be, let's say for our pasture sample here, up around that 14 or 15% ash or even higher, that's a little bit of a concern because high values can suggest that your sample actually inappropriately contains high levels of soil, dirt, oops, that may have been added either during mowing with some mud splash with rain or off wet ground, or during uh, the chopping process and or during rolling. So if you've had a big tractor with jewels on it and it's rolling and it's picking up a lot of mud and dirt and then rolling that across your stack, that'll add a lot of soil. So this sample at 10% is probably okay with that. And the fact that, if you recall from episode number one, our iron levels in the silage were also okay. And if we have inappropriately high levels of iron, that's also a red flag that, whoops, we've ended up with soil uh, into the silage. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because we don't want soil in the silage because it brings a lot of microbes Uh, soil associated microbes into the stack and that can really cause problematic fermentations that increases risk of ending up with rotten silage and the bacteria uh, most associated with this is uh, one what's a, a family of different bacteria called Clostridia and those ones can throw some not very nice fermentations that we're going to talk about shortly. The next one on the list after ash is organic matter, I tend to when I'm skimming results just look straight over organic matter, and the reason for that is numerically organic matter is simply a a value of 100, take away the ash value, so it's just the inverse of uh, ash. Heading further down the list we're now down to, behind organic matter, we're down to soluble sugars or water soluble carbohydrates. The higher the level of this in your silage sample, the better. Like, I mean, for sure, some of the sugars that are in the grass um, and legumes as they go into the stack will be consumed by the microbes in the stack during the fermentation process. And hey, look, that's the whole process of fermentation. And the fermentation will then help um, create acid and pickle and stabilise a silage stack. So the sugar levels in a silage will always be lower than the fresh forage that goes in just because some of the are consumed through a process of respiration and some of the byproducts of that process is the um, formation of acids to pickle the stack. However, what we don't want to see in a silage sample coming back from the lab is extremely low levels of sugar. And the reason we don't like extremely low levels of sugar is that this is suggesting that something's not quite gone right now it might be that the fermentation process has gone on and on and on and on for weeks instead of slowing down and stopping after the first perhaps um, hopefully couple of weeks. And because it's been prolonged, all of the microbes in the stack have continued to feed on and munch their way through the sugar and have consumed the majority of those. Or, and it could have been the case in this particular silage sample, some of some or the majority of the sugars may have leached out Uh, because this was a very wet silage, and some of that may have ended up as effluent, and that's all your soluble good stuff that should otherwise be eaten by a ruminant and be fueling a rumen fermentation, not a stack fermentation. So in this sample, um, the sugar content, soluble sugar content, as reported, is only 1.2% as a percentage of dry matter. Now, you're going to first be saying, well, what's the normal range? Uh, Tell me about it. And those of you that have uh, got a copy of this in front of you or perhaps have your own feed test results in front of you, you'll see that there's not a normal or expected range um, provided by the lab. And look, that's not unusual because providing a target level of sugars in silage is a bit of a trick, really, because the final level is not only dependent on Whether you've leached some out as effluent or whether you've had a prolonged fermentation and they've been respired out and turned into um, water and carbon dioxide. But it's also determined by how much uh, sugar or water-soluble carbohydrates was in the fresh forage to start with. And that can be all over the place determined by how much sunshine there's been. Uh, the maturity of that grass, the proportion of legumes. So I don't blame the feed testing lab for not putting a normal range, but all I can say is more is better, so on it might be 4 or 5 or 6% six This is a but pasture what we're talking about. Starch is obviously a starch. lot more important for starch-containing forage, such as maize silage, um, whole crop cereal silage as examples. Typically our pasture silage contains quite low levels of starch, Uh, although sometimes if there's a heap of clover, um, so red and white clovers, for example, through your grass-based silage, you might get slightly higher levels of starch because uh, the clovers do contain some starch. Grass, on the other hand, contains very low levels of starch unless there's a lot of seed head in it. But yeah, for grass-dominant pasture silage, starch is usually low. It's usually sort of between 05 to 2% if it's got a lot of seed head in it. But in the case of this sample, We've got less than 0.5% starch, um, and that's nothing unexpected here. Um, It's not a soluble nutrient that readily leaches, so even if this was an effluent stack running out the bottom, uh, the starch usually behaves in there unless it is broken down to sugars and then leaches from there by microbes. Hey, the next one on the list, I hope you're hanging in there, This is a big one. Hold on. Digestibility of organic matter in dry matter. Oh dear, that's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Can you forgive me and we're just going to call this DOMD for short. You've probably heard of it DOMD so other people don't have to trip over a mouthful. Or otherwise some of you will just call this simply digestibility. So this DOMD or digestibility figure, the way to interpret this is the higher the number the better. So high values mean that Once the stuff's inside the rumen, it's been eaten by an animal, it's inside the rumen, if it's got a high DOMD, this means that the rumen's going to be able to extract a lot more energy and goodness from this feed uh, more quickly and more extensively than if you have a low DOMD value. So a low value means you're not going to extract as much goodies uh, in the rumen and more of a high proportion of that silage is going to end up out the back end of the dung as undigested feed, which obviously is not very helpful. So as far as what we normally expect to see for pasture silage values, well look, it's very variable, it depends on the quality of the forage that went in, uh, proportion of grass to... Uh, relative to legumes etc but usually we'd expect pasture silages to hopefully sit somewhere between 65 and 75 percent digestibility Uh, you've probably um, occasionally seen a really good one sometimes as much as 80 percent digestible probably at best you know maybe high 70s Uh, but yeah there's a few red flags coming with the silage and given the fiber is really high and we're a bit sus that there's been some effluent leached out of it what do you reckon this one's going to test at Geez, if this was your silage stack and you had 100 tonne or something sitting there, you'd want to be sitting down for this one. This one is actually only 43% digestible. Yeah, hell, if I had 100 tonne of this, I'd be pretty gutted. So look, that's about as low and as awful as you'll get from a pasture silage. There's some serious stuff going wrong with this stack. So it might be, you know, the conversation yet again that we've lost a lot of the soluble nutrients uh, if we've lost effluent from this. And or, as we've already said, the microbes in the silage stack may have been tuning away, consuming uh, all of the soluble good stuff if that fermentation has gone on for an inappropriately long period of time and we haven't reached a stable pH. So it's a it's a real shame. Um, but yeah, this digestibility is pretty awful. So the next one on this list is... Obviously, very closely linked in with that digestibility figure, and it's one that almost all of you will be much more familiar with of megajoules of metabolizable energy, which others will call MJME or ME, whatever you want to call it, energy. So, look, most feed testing labs um, will provide you with an ME value, uh, metabolizable energy value. But just a, a little bit of a note, off as a side note here, is that the various feed testing labs out there will usually calculate their uh, calculated ME values in slightly different ways. Uh, so we've just got to be careful comparing results from uh, silages perhaps submitted to different feed test labs. Uh, and the take home there is if you want to do quite a bit of feed testing at your place and you want to compare between different silages, perhaps deciding which ones you're going to feed when to, to different stock classes, or perhaps you want to see how you silage making is going from year to year, uh, would really recommend that you stick with just the same one lab and you'll have some uh, some results that will be able to be uh, compared both between samples and between years. Because otherwise, calculation methods um, that vary perhaps between labs are going to make it pretty hard for you to compare results. Back to our silage sample here. Perhaps you're having a look at it. You've got it off uh, the Facebook group, The Room Room. Uh, You'd want to be sitting down with this one as well if you had a hundred uh, ton stack of this stuff and some very hungry animals to feed. the The ME value for this silage is, is a miserable 6.8 megajoules of metabolizable energy per kilogram of dry matter. So here, yeah, that's about as low as you get for for grass silage. Again, reflecting very mature stuff that's gone in uh, and or effluent that's been lost out the bottom of the stack. That's very poor. Uh, grass silage, well, it's hard to always predict what your ME might be, but gosh, I'd be hoping a, a silage would be sort of, you know, nine and a half to 11. Sometimes you'll sneak into the lower 11s if it's very, very good, but yeah, the 6.8's right off the bottom end of the page. It's it's a very poor silage. So all the results that we've looked at so far are results that are not only reported for silages, but also for fresh forages, for forage crops, and lots of other feed types Um, from where we started at the top with dry matter down to metabolizable energy, that part of the feed report equally applies to other feeds. Where we now differ, now we're in the home stretch of this interpretation of the silage feed test, is where we now go into the silage-specific feed test results, so just for silage. We'll kick this off for silage-specific results with silage pH. So the pH is simply a measure of the acidity of silage. So pH is a scale where very high is a lot of uh, alkalinic uh, properties and down very, very low is very acidic. So a fresh forage goes into the stack on uh, day zero when it's first covered. The, uh, the normal pH of that might be 65 You know, not quite seven, not quite neutral, but a little bit under that. And then over the days and weeks to follow, with a good fermentation, uh, you have microbes in the stack consuming soluble nutrients, not too many we hope, and producing acid that then ensiles or pickles uh, that. Lots of acid makes the silage stay nice and stable and that's why we can conserve it for uh, many months at a time, things going well. So the lower the pH, the more acidic it is, and therefore likely the better the quality of silage. The actual target pH values will vary between the types of forage that's been ensiled. So we are talking today about pasture silage, but if we look at one extreme, let's go for maize silage first. Now, maize silage is relatively easy as a forage to preserve as silage, and provided it's chopped and packed very, very well, we can reach an end point pH that sometimes can be as low as 3.7, 3.8, and the upper range where we we need maize silage to be no higher than is about 4.2, so about 3.7 to 4.2 pH. So when we're interpreting maize silage, we need to be chasing something as low um, uh, pH as we can, and normal should be under 4 or no more than that 4.2. On the other hand, grass silage, And grass silage, particularly that's mixed in as a mixed pasture with legumes, is a little bit harder to get a very low pH on despite our best efforts. So we set ourselves a target that's more likely to be attainable. And usually we're saying we're doing pretty well with a grass silage if we're somewhere between about 4.3 and 4.6, 4.7, somewhere around there. We're talking about this pasture silage here and the result here is 4.6 for this grass silage. I actually expected this sample to be higher than 4.6, mainly because it hasn't got very much of the nice acid that we like, lactic acid, to acidify the sample. So if I'd gone from the bottom of the results and headed upwards instead of going top down, um, I'd be expecting the, the pH on this to be reading somewhere into the fives. But surprise, it's 4.6. It's, it's surprised me a wee bit. So following pH, Where we go to now is a value called ammonium N, which is a subset or part of the total non-protein nitrogen in the sample, uh, which in turn is a subset of crude protein. So it's one specific thing that we look for to give us an indication of how much breakdown of true plant proteins has happened during the ensiling process. There's two results that you'll see with the Hill Laboratory results, and one is the total amount of ammonium N as a percent of dry matter. And the second one is ammonium N expressed as a ratio of total nitrogen, or another way of looking at is what percentage of total N is present as ammonium N, whichever way you want to look at that. For a pasture silage, the lower this ammonium N to total N ratio is, the better. Pasture silage in the ideal world really should be sitting at uh, no higher than 10, we're at a push 12%. Our sample sitting in front of us uh, contains about 13.3% is ammonium in, which means it's too high. There's been some microbes in the stack that have been a little bit too busy breaking down plant proteins in the stack and converting them into non-protein nitrogen, as I say, of which uh, ammonium N is just one subset of that. So, your total crude protein might still be okay, and that there's been no loss of total nitrogen, but the really useful, good quality plant proteins have um, been broken down a process called proteolysis to not only ammonia as one of the types, or ammonium as one of the types of non protein nitrogen, uh, but also other really undesirable non-protein nitrogen compounds, specifically uh, amines. And these amines are the ones that reduce the tastiness of the silage and really turn animals off wanting to eat this stuff. So the ammonia or ammonium is a flag that there's too many non-protein nitrogen compounds, but we don't think the ammonia itself is a switch off for intake of silage. It's more that the amines that accompany high levels of ammonia um, are clearly present and that's what uh, this result's telling us. So we'd be thinking the silage probably hasn't ensiled that well. would suspect that there's been a long, slow drop in pH after ensiling, during which time those microbes have had a lovely old time munching their way through the plant proteins and, and wrecking those proteins and turning them into non-protein nitrogen. So we're starting to put this together with the other results on the silage and remembering that the silage was too wet, only 26% dry matter, So these wet wet ones are a bit of a mission mainly because they do support the presence and growth of those Clostridia microbes. Uh, And Clostridia microbes are particularly good uh, at breaking plant proteins into ammonium even when the pH is a bit lower. So now we've delved through a couple more numbers that are silage specific for this pasture silage sample. And the majority of the the standard silage samples will include both the pH and the ammonium N. Unfortunately, here in New Zealand, not a lot of people routinely request these uh, fermentation acids apart from the lactic acid that's given as standard, which is a bit of a shame because these fermentation acids, when they're analysed, are actually really useful for picking up on on the quality of silage, um, particularly if the silage hasn't fermented very well. So we're going to quickly finish up now discussing what different levels of the fermentation acids in silage mean. Let's first kick off with the really good acid that we want lots of, and that's lactic acid. Now, lactic acid is the best of the various types of acids produced in a stack or, or, hey, maybe a bale of silage, because on average, it's a really strong acid, which means you don't need a lot of it to drop the pH in the stack really well. So, like the acidity of lactic acid is maybe 10 times stronger um, than the other fermentation acids. So, a little bit of lactic acid goes a long way to effectively dropping the pH uh, in your silage. And a well made silage should contain a lot of lactic acid. Poorly made silages contain not a lot. So coming back to our silage here, and you're starting to probably get a bit of a feel for it that we're not very happy with the quality of the silage. And the lab has reported that the silage contains just 1.7% lactic acid on a dry matter basis. So either the lactic acid was never formed properly in the first place due to a, a long, slow, um, protracted fermentation Or perhaps there's been some secondary fermentation underway uh, where the lactic acid has been turned into other things um, as secondary fermentation byproducts. Or maybe if there's been a lot of effluent loss, the the soluble lactic acid's actually been leached out as part of the effluent. So we'll never really know what happened to the lactic acid in, in the sample, but yeah, it's too low. If, if things were much better, we'd be looking for um, uh, lactic acid in a, in a pasture silage, maybe, uh, you know, uh, somewhere 5 or 6 up to 10 or even 12% lactic acid on a dry matter basis. So something seriously has gone wrong here, eh? What about the other fermentation acids? So some labs will offer, you know, an extended silage profile feed test that includes, yeah, for sure you'll get your lactic acid, but you'll get um, a couple of other types as well. So finishing up on this episode now, we'll go quickly through the other fermentation acids that you may expect with a more um, comprehensive silage analysis. So firstly acetic acid. In a well-made pasture silage, we'd like acetic acid to be somewhere between 1 and 3% of dry matter. Now for all of the limitations of the silage sample, we have been quite lucky that we've actually reported 1.2% acetic acid. When we've got a target between 1 and 3% that's actually fallen somewhere just where it needs to be I was a bit surprised because sometimes in wet silages like this one where clearly things haven't been going well we can get inappropriately high levels of acetic acid as in four or even five percent acetic acid on a dry matter basis and acetic acid if and certainly if you can smell it that may be a put off for stock Um, not the acetic acid itself but when you've got an acetic acid type fermentation it's likely we have other stuff in the silage that have that really puts animals off eating it, including those amines. Down to the last two results on this stack. The second to last number on this report is another fermentation acid called propionic acid. And like this, uh, the other range of acids, yeah, propionic useful to drop the, the pH in the stack. But to be fair, we don't normally get a lot of propionic acid in, in p- uh, pasture silage. Quite often, you won't even pick it up. Um, The silage will be reported as containing 0.2% propionic acid, which is the case in this one. So we've only got um, less than 0.2, just a trace, um, which is is, uh, normal. And last but not least, and this is probably the most important result from all of the pages of different stuff that we've been through on this particular silage sample result, is one called butyric acid. And we've trolled through all of these other numbers Minerals and everything. And hey, it's taken two episodes to get to this point in this room and room podcast. But finally, we have a number that is just awful uh, and is very likely going to explain why the cattle don't want to eat the silage, butyric acid. Now, we should have a value of butyric acid showing on this feed test of less than 0.5% butyric acid on a dry matter basis. And this is where things look really bad. We've actually got a result of 2.3% butyric acid on a dry matter basis. So this isn't good and is a really important reason why the cattle won't be wanting to eat this in combination with the probability of amines being present and um, that's been indicated by the fact we have high levels of ammonia. So let's first describe the smell of butyric acid. You've probably smelt it on rotten silage at some stage but maybe you haven't put your finger on just what it is. Personally I reckon a high butyric acid silage smells of vomit. We all have different noses. Other people talk of it as rotten butter that's been you know, lost in the back of the cupboard for a while or whatever it is, it's pretty foul and it gets into your skin. So if you're handling that silage in your hands, you it's really hard to get that stink out. And sure, it's so how you don't want to be downwind of, of that if you've got a butyric acid stack. So your ruminant animals are really not going to like to eat silage. It contains butyric acid um, and this will be a really high probability of what's happening with this silage and why nothing wants to eat it. So we had mentioned before that butyric acid um, is formed particularly by the clostridial family of bacteria, and uh, during the fermentation um, process that, co- that produces butyric acid, it really uh, destroys the good quality nutrients in your silage, including sugar and protein. So... I suspect there's been a clostridial fermentation happening in the stack. We've lost a lot of our sugar uh, and plant proteins that have been broken down and uh, that's seen as a high ADF and NDF uh, and very low digestibility and ME. So it's all starting to make sense why why the silage stunk, um, why the rest of the quality is really, really poor uh, and it's p- kind of put it all together. So finishing up, what do we do with a silage like this? Well... No discerning sensible Reuben is going to want to eat this stuff unless they are very, very hungry. So yes, in theory, um, if we were very unkind and didn't have a lot of morals, we could push hungry animals to eat this stuff. Maybe we could dollop something tasty like feed-grade molasses on top to disguise the smell and the taste. But look, truthfully, I'd have to ask the question, do you really want your high-performance stock class um, or classes eating this stuff? No, probably not. As explained, the overall feed quality is poor. If we push animals to eat this stuff, some of them could actually get quite unwell from the high levels of butyrate in the silage or butyric acid. So inside the rumen, if these animals actually ate the silage, the butyric acid is metabolised in the rumen um, down into other things, and any that crosses the rumen wall is actually converted by the rumen wall tissue into a ketone called beta-hydroxybutyrate. And a lot of you dairy farmers would know what this stuff is. This is the same as what ketotic animals produce when they're metabolising too much back fat off their back, either just before calving or during early lactation. So it's the same ketone, it's the same appetite suppressant uh, as uh, the endogenous coming from back fat. So all in all, it's not very good. So this sort of silage for vulnerable stock classes, especially late gestation or lactating animals, are going to be in all sorts of trouble if they eat this stuff through uh, carving or lambing particularly with regard to risk of sleepy sickness and ewes. And they're more likely to present with clinical ketosis, um, both because they're mobilising their own back fat, but also because the rumen wall is metabolising this horrible butyric acid that's actually in the silage. So either way, this is not um, a good idea. A couple of other animal health concerns with rotten silage is um, firstly one that comes to mind called listeriosis, uh, caused by listeria bacteria, um, as we've discussed in poorly ensiled um, feeds. A couple of different syndromes, one's a scouring kind of gut-based condition, and then the other one's a syndrome called circling disease, which is caused by micro abscesses in the brain. Either way, both uh, types of listeriosis are best avoided by not eating this stuff in the first place. As well, if you've got um, in-lamb or in-calf animals, if we've got f- of- obvious fungus growing on this stuff as well, um, clearly there's a risk of both fungal abortion and or fungal pneumonia, so we want to avoid that. So that's us done, team. This has been a hell of a topic um, spread out of out over two episodes, but I'm just kind of hoping that um, now you'll have the courage and confidence to in- to start to interpret these extensive feed test results yourselves um, and particularly if you do have problems for example with stock that are refusing silage and don't want to eat it it's really worth submitting a full extended feed test to look at things including these fermentation acids. So look that's us um, summing up <laughs> there's lots of clues here that makes us really sus that this moan. Uh, pasture has gone into the stack too wet so it wasn't wilted long enough or maybe it was wilted then got rained on before it was chopped into the stack or maybe the cover was getting uh, uh, put on the stack like the day after it was it was stacked and and, uh, it got rained on or maybe the cover was damaged by like calves hurtling over the top and punching holes in it with their little sharp hooves whatever it is it's not a good silage So look, thanks for joining us with this episode, uh, part two of the two-part series about walking through a full silage feed test uh, report and looking specifically at aspects around this and stack of pasture silage. It really isn't very good quality. We really hope you found this useful. On behalf of myself, Charlotte Westwood, and PGD Rights and Seeds, we hope that you can join us again uh, very soon for another episode from the Room & Room podcast series. Cheers.